From around the world, this is the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated G, which means it's perfectly safe for folks and families of all ages. Yes, even Grandma. Enjoy. How do I? I'll skip ahead a bit. No, I can't skip ahead. All, all right, everybody, into the time machine. No, 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 no! You don't understand how radio works. All I have to do to return us to the present is fade my voice out like this and cue the organist. You see, here we are. Wait a minute. 63 Audio presents the Old Time Radio Essentials Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Old Time Radio Essentials. If this is your first time joining us, I must inform you that this is Episode 5. My name is Pete. This is Paul. And I'm Jane. The purpose of our show is to present specific episodes of our favorite Old Time Radio series, Episodes that stand out as particularly representative of those series or as one of those quotable episodes that fans of old radio like to discuss when they get together. We'll open each episode by introducing the selection, describe it briefly, and then play it for you. Then we'll come back at the end of the selection and discuss it at length, each of us giving their opinions on its merit, its performances, or anything that stands out for us. And that's exactly what we're presenting to you, just our opinions on whether or not it's worthy of a place in every old-time radio aficionado's personal collection. And you don't have to agree with us. And in fact, we, we may not agree with each other. That does happen. But we do hope that you'll enjoy what we bring to the table and, and then keep coming back for more. Now, each of us three will take turns selecting a show for discussion. And if you've been listening, you know that that's what we've been doing. Last month's selection was mine, and that was an episode of The Goon Show, in case you didn't hear it. We hope you'll go back and listen to previous episodes. This month, we come around again to Paul. And what do you have for us, Paul? For this installment, I'm bringing an episode, actually the first episode from the Ford Radio Theater from 1947. It is A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. But they just shortened it down to just a Connecticut Yankee, based on the Mark Twain novel. And so, without further delay, we present A Connecticut Yankee from 1947 and the Ford Theater. And now, friends, adjust your radio dials to the proper frequency, get comfortable, and listen. This is the Ford Theater. Presenting the first in a new series of full-hour radio dramas under the sponsorship of the Ford Motor Company. May we introduce, as spokesman for the management of the Ford Theater, the distinguished playwright, actor, and producer, co-author of Life with Father and State of the Union, Mr. Howard Lindsay. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Ford Theater, a new and hopeful structure located at the corner of this wavelength and Main Street, USA, and Canada. Your seats, of course, are in the front row, on the beam. And you'll notice that the Ford Theater, like many an older playhouse, has a motto carved on the keystone of the arch that spans the stage. It reads... The play is the thing. 
This afternoon's play is based on a famous American novel which, as far as we can learn, has never before been presented on the air. We shall hear George Zachary's production of A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. <laughs> Twain wrote the Connecticut Yankee just short of 60 years ago, and the Yankee he wrote about was a typical last-century American, a foreman of iron workers in a Hartford gun foundry. But suppose old Mark were alive and kicking, as usual, today, at this moment. How would he choose his hero here in the year of our Lord, 1947? And how would he begin his strange tale? Well, if I were Mark, I can imagine I might begin somewhat on this order. I came across the curious stranger of my story in the Hall of Armor at the Metropolitan Museum here in New York one fine Sunday afternoon early last summer. I was reading the descriptive placard set below a magnificent suit of armor in the center of the hall when I noticed a quiet, serious-looking young man beside me. Leaning forward a little, he read the inscription aloud and with marked contempt. Sixth-century Hoburk said to have belonged to Sir Sagramola Desirous, knight of King Arthur and member of the Round Table. Observe the bullet hole through the armor in the left breastplate. It cannot be accounted for. <laughs> That's what they think. I beg your pardon, sir. Which ye well, I saw it done. You... Saw it? Matter of fact, mister, I did it myself. It all started in Hartford, Connecticut, right in my own backyard. I was on terminal leave. I'd been with the Seabees in the Pacific for three years. And it turned out that the fellow next door had been with the Army engineers. He was boasting about them one day. I couldn't take that. I told him that the Army engineers couldn't even build a pontoon bridge unless they had prefabricated parts. I didn't expect he'd resent a simple statement of fact such as that, so I was wide open when his fist landed, and I went out like a light. When I woke up, I was lying on a dirt floor. Above me was a low stone ceiling, and around me were four stone walls, one with a heavy metal door. Before I even had time to be surprised, the door opened and a young guy came in. He was dressed from neck to knees in a pair of shrimp-colored tights, and he carried a crust of bread in one hand and an earthenware mug in the other. Well, sir, will you take some? Will I which? Will you taste of bread and sip of water therewith to fill thy paunch and slake thy thirst? What, what, what kind of talk is that? Where am I? Marry, sir, where wouldst thou be other than in King Arthur's court? Where? King Arthur's court, have you no ears? Say, so what kind of joke is this? Well, what dost thou think it a joke? Listen, I'm talking to a guy in my own backyard. He knocks me out. I wake up in jail. You come in decked out in some kind of costume, spotting some kind of queer language. What word would you use for it except joke? Ah. And uh, dost consider it likewise a joke that thou art to be burned at the stake within the hour? Burned at the stake? What for? Thy strange dress doth proclaim thou art an evil magician. An evil magician? Look, kid, I want to see a lawyer. I know not what meaneth lawyer, and I hate not kid. 
And it please your worship, I hike Pierre de Beauchamp, Bedivier de Butler. Pierre de Bush, Bush, Bush. I'll call you uh, Clarence. Uh, look, I'd better get the picture as you see it. You say this is King Arthur's court. Which you will, and so it be, the glorious Arthur whose golden reign hath blessed us since the year 510. 510? And what year is it now? Why, 528. But what mattereth to thee what year it be since it be thy last day on earth? <laughs> now, wilt thou come with me in orderly fashion, or must I need summon the guards? Ah, come quietly, officer. Anything to find out what this is all about. Thou hadst best shield thine eyes. The glare of the sun is fearsome. Say, so what are all those people doing over there in that field? Now, sweet your worship, they are come to see thee burden. Holy mackerel, you weren't kidding. <laughs> Yonder is the stake. No, this can't be. This must be a nightmare. But I better not take any chances. Uh, uh, Clarence, what time is this bonfire set for? When the sun doth reach its highest point. Noon, huh? Noon, sun. Clarence, what's the date today? The 21st of June. The 21st of June, the year 528. But that's wonderful. Wonderful? Has taken leave of thy senses, my lord. Clarence, congratulate me. I will not be burned today. I'd remembered something. Something from the days when I used to memorize the almanac to keep from going stir-crazy on those Pacific coral reefs. On that day, there was a total eclipse of the sun... Now, these people apparently believed in magic, and they'd certainly never heard of an eclipse. So I turned to Clarence. Sir? Is, um, is King Arthur in the house? Yonder he sits, under the royal canopy. Ah. Hey there, King Arthur! Speakest thou to me? To nobody else but. I hear you think I'm a magician. So Merlin hath informed me. Who's Merlin? Know ye not of Merlin? Is he who sitteth here upon my right hand, for he be my trusted advisor. And the most powerful magician in all the land. And he wants to get rid of me. Afraid of the competition? Nay, he fears not thee, nor any man. Is it not so, good Merlin? My gracious liege, I well know the limit of this man's power. He can do naught to harm us. Is that so? Is that so? Listen, King Arthur, if you go through with this barbecue, I'll cook up the worst disaster since Noah's flood. Uh, how say you? I will blot out the sun. Merlin! Can he in truth do this thing? He can, Sir King, but he dare not, for it can be done only by calling upon that awful being whose name tis death to pronounce. That's ridiculous. Enough, enough. I believe thee, good Merlin. I am to the stake. Okay, if that's the way you want it. You hear that, all you people? Your king has doomed you to destruction. I am going to destroy the sun. Hark as I call forth the forces at my command. Read, plead, zoot, zoot, hey, baba, rebop, mercy, dodes, bleep, bloop, Hudson Ross, another river, upon you, O dreaded one, upon you whose name may not be spoken save by the chosen few, on you I call to destroy the sun, as I pronounce thine awful and fearful name. Snafu! My timing was on the nose. 
The crowd went mad with fear. But I wasn't feeling so good either, because I figured to myself, there's no eclipse due on June 21st in 1947. This must be the year 528, and I am in King Arthur's court. Well, there was no help for it. I'd have to make out as best I could. Meanwhile, King Arthur was practically down on his knees pleading with me. Good, sweet, most powerful magician. Bring not this disaster upon the world because of mine own disbelief in thee. Reflect, gracious sir. Bring back the sun. Okay, King Arthur. Here's my proposition. If I bring back the sun, you appoint me permanent prime minister. My cut will be 10% of any increase in revenue I produce for the state. If I can't live on that, I won't ask for a raise. Is it a deal? Away with his bond! Rich and poor shall do him homage. He is the king's right hand and is clothed with full power and authority. Now, good sir, sweep away the night and bring the light again. Let the enchantment dissolve and pass harmless away. Open the door, Richard! thought I was the greatest magician in the world. King Arthur wanted to fire Merlin without so much as two weeks' pay, but I vetoed that. That's where I made my first mistake. Then I realized what a man out of the 20th century could do back there in the 6th. Every little thing I did created a sensation. I showed them my watch. Oh, it is marvelous. It's an infernal machine. It's amazing. I flashed my pocket lighter. Have a care. He holds a fire in his hand. It is a magical torch. Even my jokes panicked him. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? (laughs) (laughs) Marvelous, Oh, a prodigy of humor. Me. <laughs> then, to top it off, I cooked up a batch of dynamite and... blew up Merlin's castle. That did it. So far as King Arthur's court was concerned, I was the boss. In fact, if you wanted to talk to me, you said, Sir Boss, and liked it. Sir Boss, in truth, I am loath to disturb thee, but there is a maiden come from the king who waited these two months, craving audience with thee. <sighs> Send her in, Clarence. Okay, Sir Boss. Demoiselle Arisande de Cattlewells, Sir Boss. Well, my girl, what can I do oh, for you? Oh, perchance, fair Sir Boss, thou canst succeed wherein all others have failed. The dragons are of such a size to fright the soul of being the most valorous of men as they do glare from their terrible eye, which does sit witchy well in the very center of their fire. Wait a minute. Like a day in you, what how many have I said? And yet Wait a minute. Ugly, yet I hold them not blameless. Wait a minute. Clarence, what's she talking about? Um, King Arthur hath appointed thee her protector... Thou must slay for her a fearsome dragon. Dragon? I, my mistress, with 44 other maidens, are held captive in a castle surrounded by the most fearful oh, monsters. Oh, let's sister. Clarence, you know I don't have time to play truth of consequences, even with a cutie like this. But, Sir Bosch, she may not leave thy side until thou hast granted her boon as the law of chivalry. Oh, rats. I tell you what, Clarence, give her my correspondence course on shorthand and typing. If she insists on hanging around, she might as well be useful. <laughs> Come thou with me, Amazon. Fare thee well, sweet your worship. See you later, uh, uh, Sandy. Clarence, the more I see of this chivalry business, the more convinced I get that it's just a phony racket. Don't these knights have anything better to do than go around bashing in each other's skulls in tournaments and, 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 and chasing dragons that don't exist? Why, for suits, Sir Boss, is all they know. Why can't they do something more productive, do something for their people? 
what meanest thou by people? You know, folks other than knights. Oh, forsooth. <laughs> there be none worth mentioning other than the knights. These others exist only in that they may serve the knights. What sort of wages do they get? Wages? What signifieth wages? Never mind, that answers the question. Are they at least treated kindly? Good, sir, boss. The knights know not the meaning of kindness. Marry the life of these ye call the the people. They do esteem as something less than the life of a good dog or a, a middling horse. Clarence, I think I'll have to make some changes in that direction. Would you like to help? That I would, although I be high-born. Yet I relish not the time when I am knighted and needs must go about breaking the bones of innocence so that I may be termed valorous. I would rather be as thou, Sir Boss, a uh, uh, hep character. That's the spirit, Clarence. Now, I want you to find about 50 other boys your own age who feel the way you do. I'll put them through a grind that'll make the CB training course look like a vacation. But one thing, Clarence, Merlin is my sworn enemy. If he spills a word of this to Arthur and the Knights before we're ready for them, our hash is cooked. The whole operation is top secret. Got that letter ready for my signature, Sandy? She's ready for thy new fountain pen, Sir Boss. Yes, Clarence. Oh. Majesty Arthur, King of the Table Round, Sir Mordred de Rouchemont, half brother to the King, the court magician murdered. Send him in. Sir Boss, Alessandra Your Majesty. Sir Boss, we have come to this tower thou callest Pent House, and unto this room thou callest Office, to learn for what reason thou dost defy our royal will. How's that, King? It's half a year since His Majesty had bidden thee to slay the dragon for the maiden Alessandra. Oh, so that's it. Go on with your work, Sandy. Wherefore dost thou remain in the confines of thy battlements, Sir Boss? Art thou faint of heart? Faint of heart, my eye. Listen, Mordred, I've got better things to do than chase around in a tin suit. Aye? What, Sir Boss? What more important? None of your business, you old faker. Your Majesty, until this day have I waited to present thee proof of yon traitor's acts. In the dark of night doth he brew his black magic on land and on water, on shores and in the woods and the bowels of the earth. And even in the air itself, at the Confederates, working and plotting to destroy thee and thy crown. That's a lie, Merlin. Canst deny thine own works? Gaze, O Arthur, upon the maid at table, pecking with her fingers as a hen pecketh corn. Tis only a typewriter, Your Majesty. Now, Listen, you witch doctor without a mask. I'm not trying to destroy your king. I'm trying to put his reign 1,400 years ahead of its time. Destroy him. Why, when I'm finished, Arthur will be able to change the entire course of history. Thou speakest fair, Sir Boss. Beware, silken tongue, oh my king. Listen, Arthur, I'll put my cards on the table right now. I like you. I'm doing everything I can to help you. But if helping you means that I have to destroy the rotten, unjust, antiquated structure of chivalry, then that's just what I'll do. He slandereth chivalry, my lord. What? Nay, he meaneth not, Mordred. The heck I don't. Wilt thou defame all knighthood? Thou goes too far, Sir Boss. Defend thee, Violet. Why, you dumb clock? Hold, hold, Boss. Hold, Mordred. Nay, I am of two minds about this matter. In this manner shall we settle it. Upon the morrow do you, Sir Boss, appear upon the field of honor to do battle with Sir Mordred. If thou dost vanquish him, then so thy work shall continue. Yet, if thou art vanquished, 
Then will all thy powers be forfeit, and thyself be banished from the land. Fine. Sir Boss, thou art not afraid. Afraid? Of this sardine can, Sandy? Listen, King Arthur, Mordred isn't enough. I'll take on your whole round table. Sir Boss! From Launcelot to Sagramorla Desirous, we'll settle this thing once and for all. <laughs> I spent the night trying to figure an angle to beat the collected assortment of the Knights of the Round Table. Everything I believed in depended on it. It was the final test of the 20th century against the 6th. I knew, of course, that Merlin was busy all night, too, saying incantations and weaving spells around his boys. That was the trouble with Merlin. He believed his own magic. Came the dawn, and I dressed up in the fanciest pair of tights I could find in Clarence's clothes closet, and off I went to the tournament grounds. To see that crowd, you think it was a World Series. There wasn't a vacant seat in the house, and everyone there was yelling for my blood. I walked to the middle of the field, bowed to the king and queen, and stood there waiting. All of a sudden, the trumpet started a racket. And a herald called out, So Lancelot, into the fray for king and country! Well, they were sending in their powerhouse right off. The gates at the end of the arena flew open, and a suit of armor perched on a horse bore down on me. I waited until he had worked up full steam, then I whipped out a lasso I had hidden under my cape, whirled it around a few times like I used to when I was a kid, and let go. It went round his shoulders, and I pulled tight for all I was worth. He bit the dust. He couldn't get to his feet, being encased in a ton of metal. So get it! I yanked back my lasso, recoiled it, and by that time, Sir Gareth was in position for my attack. I tossed the lasso. Sir Gareth bit the dust. That sort of thing went on for almost an hour. The ground was covered with wriggling suits of armor, and my right arm was getting ready to drop off when the herald called out, So Sagamore, the desires, into the brave for king and country! Suddenly, I noticed Merlin beside me. He hissed in my ear. Now, sir, boss, have I spun around Sir Sagamore's spell, which protects him well from thee. Says you. And now art thou helpless for all thy magic weapons. Look, go paddle your foolishness somewhere else. Got you, rat. <laughs> he scattered, and I reached down to pick up my lasso. It was gone. The old humbug had swiped it. Sir Sagramore charged at me, a ton of man and horse and steel, straight down upon me. The crowd went wild. It looked as if I was a goner. I had no choice. I reached into my pocket and brought out my last trick, the one I'd hoped I'd never have to use. I used it. Well, sir, that's it. That's how the bullet hole got into Sagamore's breastplate here in the museum. Like I said, I put it there myself. And so you vanquished all the knights of the round table. Yep. But that was only the beginning. Would you Would you like to hear the rest? I certainly would. Well, then, give me a minute to get it all straight in my head. You see, sometimes I can't tell one century from another. While the Yankee pulls himself together, we'll remain right here in the 20th century. We have with us in the Ford Theater this afternoon a gentleman whose family name is recognized everywhere in the world as a symbol of 20th century progress. 
progress in human relations as well as in mechanical techniques. We are honored to present the president of the Ford Motor Company, Mr. Henry Ford II. Mr. Ford. Good afternoon. On behalf of all of us at the Ford Motor Company, I want to welcome you as our guests on this, the first broadcast of a new Ford radio program. We are very happy indeed to have you in our listening audience. At this hour, every Sunday afternoon, we plan to bring you the finest radio plays drawn from every field, stage, screen, books, and radio. To make sure that each production is the best possible, we have called on a group of able and experienced radio men and women, writers, actors, directors, and musicians. They have been at work for months, preparing the first series of plays. Their work has had one major objective, to bring you stories that people have liked and that we hope you will like. As we at the Ford Motor Company continue to do our best to serve you, we want to merit your confidence, not only in the kind of cars and trucks and tractors we make for you, but also through our actions and services in the thousands of towns and cities all over the country where we meet you and do business with you and in what we do as an industrial citizen in this great land of freedom and opportunity. And if we are to continue to deserve your confidence, we think you must know and understand what we are doing and what we are trying to do. We hope, then, that you will be a regular member of our Sunday listening audience. We hope that you will like our program. We hope also that you will be interested in some of the things we may want to tell you from time to time about ourselves and our products. Only by getting acquainted with each other can we hope to serve you better, with better cars and trucks that more and more of you can afford to buy. Thank you, Mr. Ford. In just a moment, Howard Lindsay and Act Two of A Connecticut Yankee. We now pause for station identification. The Ford Theater, a Connecticut Yankee, Act Two. Scene, the Hall of Armor at the Metropolitan Museum in New York. Our friend, the CB from Hartford, takes up his curious story once more. The tournament between the Knights and me had more to it than met the eye. So far as Arthur was concerned, it was the final test of magical strength. But I knew it was also a struggle between the existing forces of tyranny and oppression, namely Merlin and the Knights, and the struggling forces of freedom and equality, namely me. Merlin knew that as well as I did, and we both knew, too, that the battle wasn't over yet. For the next five years, I worked night and day with Clarence and our pick crew. We tapped for oil, we mined for coal and ore. We set up refineries and steel processing and manufacturing plants of all sorts. And we didn't neglect the ammunition. At last, I was ready. Wherefore bringest thou me into these cavernous buildings, Sir Boz? King Arthur, I've shown you folks a lot of magic since I've been here, but today you're going to see a form of magic that tops everything. Black magic? Oh, white magic, Sir Boss. Scientific magic, Merlin. See here. Sir Boss, what is this? This is an automobile assembly line. What signifieth automobile? 
That's one right there. It's like unto the chariot of the Prince of Darkness. It's a chariot, all right. It moves at many times the speed of a horse. Faster than my horse? Much faster. Of course, this is only a Model T. In another ten years, we'll be able to make a Lincoln. If you'll step into this next room. Nate, it's black as night, sir, boss. Merlin, bring light. You won't need a torch, King Arthur. Just push this little button. So. Ah. Wondrous light. It is brighter than the sun. That is but one of the powers of electricity, King Arthur. Uh, it's an old enchantment. Oh, it has other uses. Uh, here, Merlin, pick up this wire. There's some mischief, I trow. Walter not, Merlin, seize it. Sir Boss, thou hast slain him. Nah, he's just knocked out. Could have happened to anybody who was changing a fuse. What is in this box, Sir Boss? Reach out and turn the knob, King Arthur. Have no fear. Turn the knob. Yes. <clears throat> Call the charm, Sir Boss. Nate is enough. You uh, don't care for the radio? Uh, methinks tis a mixed blessing. Sir Boss, I have seen most marvelous things this day. Truly, thou art the greatest magician the world has ever seen. King, you ain't seen nothing yet. Look up at the sky. Ah, oh, a huge bird. Nope, an airplane. Watch! How would you like to ride in that, King Arthur? Ah, methinks to be a great adventure. Hast thou not taught me this day there is no danger in these things? Well, it takes a little time to learn to manage them. Then I will take the time to learn. And all my people shall learn. And then will each night ride upon an automobile. And every castle shall have light and heat and a radio. And each night an electric razor. You mean you want to hand all this over to the knights? Forsooth to my people. But, King Arthur, the knights are not your people. How then? The men and women who work in the fields, who repair the roads, who, who weave the clothes you wear, these are your people. But they're not ready for my miracles. Not ready? Your people are ignorant. They're poor. They're miserable. Most of them a little better than slaves. If I turn these things loose among them, they'll destroy themselves. My magic can be a blessing only if it's used with intelligence by free men. I mean to give it to your people when you have made them free. Sir Boss, I understand thee not. What meaneth freedom? Look, King Arthur, you've never really been among your wretched people. Come with Sandy and me for a week or two, disguised as a peasant. See for yourself what their lives are really like. You mean they would know me not? Ah, it would be a bold adventure. I'll do it. <laughs> Sandy, some noblemen are coming up the road. What matters it? Let them come. Get to the side of the road or they'll ride you down. Ride me down? You're a peasant now, my liege. Aye, aye, I had forgot. Um, hasty, fair Sandy, stand me aside. And put on a humble attitude. They'll be around the curve in a moment. Duck your head, keep your eye on the ground. Oh, is this all right? It'll have to do. Here they come. Don't move an inch till they pass. Hold there, Marty. Ah? Meanest thou me? Verily, I mean thee. 
How many leagues toward lies the next village? Upon my soul, I know not. You know not? Wherefore know you not what I ask thee? Thou art insolent. Mayhap this will serve to teach. Oh, no. Sandy, stay where you are. <laughs> <laughs> Forward! Sandy, are you all right? Tis nothing there, Sir Boss. Good Sandy. It grieves me sore that thou shouldst bear the last stroke meant for me. Twas not meet that thou should suffer. Thou art the king. Yet am I a man, too, and would not have a woman... My liege, the trouble is that while you look like a peasant, you don't act like one. And wherein am I lacking? In the first place, you stand too straight. Slouch over. Uh, Thus? More. When a man is poverty-stricken, when he's miserable and oppressed, the manhood in him is sapped out. He's left with shoulders that droop, a slouching body, a shuffling walk, and a head that hangs low. There's no spirit left in him. He has doubt in his heart and fear in his soul. Can you understand that? I can, as well as any man. Then concentrate on it until terror and despair have become as much a part of you as the beating of your heart. Learn what it feels like to be a man without a birthright. Arthur had much to learn, and in the next week or so, plenty of opportunity for schooling. Here we saw a young girl accused of witchcraft burned alive. There, a man tortured to death for refusing to confess to cutting down a tree on his master's estate. Another was drawn and quartered for trapping a rabbit to feed his starving family. This was the lot of the common man in the age of chivalry. No one challenged us along the way, and we went unrecognized, but not unobserved. How long, wise Merlin, have they been gone from Camelot? Ten days, Sir Mordred. Uh-huh. Now understand it full well. Thy part in this action? Tis simple enough. Arthur, Sir Boss, and the maiden are this night nigh unto London town, and will within the week be in the place itself. Thou wilt hasten there and follow the plan. <laughs> so Arthur hath desires to be amid his people, hath he? We will arrange it so that he shall have his wish, and we will have the throne. Mordred, thou hast spoken naught of this to the queen? To no one. Were death to do so, she would speak of it to Lancelot. For Lancelot loveth the king like a brother. He and those affection for the queen taketh the direction other than sister. <laughs> now it groweth late. Hide thee to London, fair Mordred. Thou shalt yet be king. a magician, so I didn't know what was in store. But I was just as worried about that Launcelot Guinevere team as Merlin was, only for a different reason. I couldn't figure it. So one day, when Arthur had gone to forage for food, I asked Sandy about it. Faith, Sir Boss, this is not difficult to explain. Arthur hath a great soul and mind which doth try to understand the world about him. Therefore, can Guinevere not possess him entirely? And it is this she doth resent, even though she be not aware of it. So she turns to Launcelot, who's nothing but a big, good-natured clown. Oh, thou must not censure her for it. All women are likewise. You too? Mayhap I will be too, if e'er I marry. Sandy, you're not the silly girl I took you for at first. You said a mouthful, Sir Boss. What was that? Oh, tis a phrase Clarence taught me. A fair-sounding phrase, is it not? I'm quick to learn. Uh Uh-huh. But do you think Arthur's learning anything from this self-conducted pole? He hath seen enough of misery, my lord, to make him wonder that men can bear their burdens. 
He hath learned to love his people. Not from kingly heights, but from his heart. That's what I'm trying to get at, Sandy. If we can make them forget about the divine right of kings and convince them of the inherent rights of men, nothing will stop us. Sir Boss, thou art truly noble in thyself. <laughs> and handsome, too. Uh, Nick, Sandy, come on, let's find Arthur. I want to get to London before dark. <laughs> London at that time was no more than a sprawling mud village. The filth and litter that clogged the streets was incredible. And the people, thousands of them, swarming, sweating, and swearing in every nook and corner. For a while, the three of us wandered around the shops, and when Sandy spotted a hat shop she liked, we left her there. I wanted to get Arthur back to the marketplace where he could get an on-the-spot view of some slaves being sold. That was part of his education. So back to the marketplace, the two of us went. We got a place near the auction block, and it wasn't too comfortable. We were pushed and jostled. And then suddenly, the king and I were seized and thrust toward the block. The men who had done it stood grinning before us. Arthur was livid. He roared out, What meanest this in man a jest? <laughs> jest, he calls it. What maketh ye think tis a jest? Put these slaves to the block for sale. Slaves? I'm no we're not slave. slaves. We're farmers. We're free men. If indeed ye be free men, bring forth your proofs. What proofs? The law requireth you to prove ye are free men, and ye cannot. You're a slave. Thou art mad. No, he's not. It's the law that's mad. We're stuck, Arthur. Nay, mark ye yonder rides, Mordred. Mordred! Mark ye, Mordred! Fair brother! Who calleth? Over here! Tis I who call. What insolence is this? a slave that dare call out to me. Mary, I am no slave with thy brother. I am Arthur. Arthur? A slave? My brother? The man's mad. Give him twenty lashes. Upon his back. That he may regain his senses and learn in what fashion he is my brother. Mordred! Mordred! Ah, he knew me not. Prepare thyself, Violet. <coughs> How darest thou? I'll teach thee to lay thy low-born hands upon my person. Arthur, no! Arthur, no! Hey, Arthur, what did you do to this guy? Great catfishes, you killed him. Tis as he deserved. Brother, this does it. Now we're really up the creek. I, Arthur, in a dungeon, a slave. I shall not suffer it. I shall proclaim myself. You open your mouth and we'll really be in a mess. But I am king. In those clothes, who'd believe you? They just think you were crazy and we, we, we'd be worse off than before. Is one of noble birth to be put in irons because he seemeth a peasant? Ah, is unjust. There's no justice in your land except for nobles. Trial by jury hasn't been invented yet. Aye. Then are we doomed. Where is thy great magic now, Sir Boss? If Merlin were here, he would save me. Look, Arthur, never mind about Merlin. We've got to put our faith in Sandy. We've been wandering around for three weeks, but we're actually not more than two days' ride from home. She can get to Camelot and bring help in four days. But, Sir Boss, are we not to be hanged in three? King, thou hast me. Right behind the eight ball. Came the dawn, and we were hauled out to the field where the gallows were ready and waiting. Public hangings were another source of amusement to these gentlefolk, and there was quite a multitude turned out to see the fun. Arthur gave them an extra show by planting himself in front of the grandstand and proclaiming, Know ye that I am Arthur, 
king of the Britons, and that upon ye one and all shall the awful penalties of treason fall, and so much as one hair of my sacred head be touched with harm. The oldest majesty is serene and sacred recognition. <laughs> Tremble and fall upon the earth. Tis the king of the slaves who speaks, and his word is law. Do you not believe me? <laughs> I am Arthur. Arthur, thy king. Arthur of the table round. Bring him forth up to the scaffold. Come, my son. Take my crown. Half my kingdom. I have a crown for thee. And a necklace of rope, too, Barlet. Kneel, my son. Art ready? No! One. No, wait! Two. Wait, you must wait! You can't hang him! It was awful. The worst moment in my life. I... I, I wonder, sir, if you'd excuse me. Certainly. Are you quite sure you're all right? Well, I, I am a little upset. I, I'd like to step out and have a smoke before I tell you the rest. I understand. Take your time. I'll be here when you get back. End of Act Two. Time, the present once more. Place, the Ford Theater. Before our third act begins, I'd like to tell you a little more about our plans for the weeks ahead. If you care to join us these coming Sunday afternoons, you will hear radio dramatizations of famous motion pictures. Next week, for example, we've scheduled Preston Sturgis's remarkable comedy, The Great McGinty. You will hear famous Broadway plays, such as On Borrowed Time, popular mysteries like A Coffin for Demetrius, the musical hit Carmen Jones, New radio plays commissioned and written especially for the Ford Theater. In short, excellent entertainment in great variety. Now, a Connecticut Yankee, Act Three. <clears throat> I watched the young man from Connecticut closely when he returned... He seemed calmer now as he took his place beside me on the museum bench, ready to resume his story. Well, as I said, the sight of that hangman's noose slipping over King Arthur's head sent me into action. As I sprang forward, I heard in the distance a faint but ever-swelling and most welcome sound. I couldn't believe my ears. I looked up. Sure enough, cutting through the skies at top speed was squadron upon squadron of airplanes in perfect formation. They swept overhead, releasing as they passed hundreds and hundreds of small white specks which came tumbling toward Earth, blossoming as they fell into full-blown parachutes. And dangling from each and every parachute was a knight in full armor. What a sight! The first to land was Sir Launcelot. The moment he hit solid ground, he leapt to Arthur's side and bellowed at the crowd, Down upon my knees, every rascal of you, and salute your king, who fails, falls by the sword. My liege, how fare ye? A moment more, and I had fared merrily into another world. Ah, good Launcelot, our utmost gratitude is thine for this deed. Fate is not upon me thy thanks should fall, but upon Clarence. 
was he who wrote it all. Unto thee, then, gallant Clarence, are we much beholden. Think nothing of it. I've had the boys practicing this maneuver for quite a spell now. Figured it might come in handy sometime. So when Sandy showed up with her story, well, that was H hour. Good thing, too, wasn't it? That's putting it mild. Is Sandy all right? That I am, my lord. I brought her down pickaback. Verily, it is the happiest of reunions. I have learned through many lessons that thou, Sir Boss, and thou, gentle Sandy, art my friends most dear in there. Thou hast taught me how my people suffer and what they must be given that they may attain to the brave new world of which I would be king. It would please me that thou, too, were never to part from me nor yet from one another. How seemeth it were I to betroth thee one to the other? Well, I never expected a king to do my proposing for me, but uh, I'll take you up if Sandy's willing. How sayest thou, fair Sandy? Tis even as I wished it might be, Sir King. Aye, then tis settled. And thou, Sir Boss, wilt lead us upon a quest of goodly works and noble deeds that will outshine all past adventures of the table round. So Sandy and I were married. Don't don't get the idea that the king put anything over on me. I had the same idea myself, but he beat me to it. Well, if ever there was a happy man on earth, I was that man. I had a wonderful wife, I had the full confidence of the king, and I was fast distributing the blessings of freedom and progress among the people. Release thou the prisoner from this dungeon. That I will not. He hath languished here these 13 years, and here he will remain. Of what crime is he accused? Tis forgotten. Mattereth not. I have here an order for his release. Tis from the newly fashioned court, and hath a wondrous sound. And uh, what may that be? A writ of habeas corpus. himself will bother house in this exclusive place. Aye, aye, but uh, it is expensive. What sayest thou? Hath not King Arthur decreed that all may own their homes? Think no longer as a serf, but as one who earneth wages. And where else wilt thou find so fair a house? Tis but a block from schools and buses. Three whole years passed like a single day. And at the end of the third year, Sandy and Clarence were in my office going over the annual reports. You'll be interested in this financial statement of the Camelot Consolidated Gas and Electric Company, dear. They made a profit this year. Good. Uh, Here's the survey from the public school board. Notice there's now at least one elementary and one high school in every town. You'll also find the blueprints for the new university included. All right, Clarence. Uh, I've made 
made up a report on the Camelot Daily Post-Gazette. We've got a circulation now of over half a million. Good work, Sandy. Now, uh, about the expedition you want to send out to discover this place you call, uh, uh, America? Hmm. I don't think the Navy's quite ready yet. Are these all the reports? Yes, except the one on the stock market from Sir Launcelot. I must say that he's abusing his position as president of the stock exchange. Last week he cornered the steel market and people simply don't have a thing to wear. And the week before he almost started to panic. Clarence, you've got to understand that Launcelot is a born adventurer. We won't let him go looking for dragons, so he corners steel markets. If it gets too bad, we'll pass a law. Is that all? Yep. Will you excuse me, then? It's Geronimo's feeding time. Oh, Geronimo. Is that any name to saddle a kid with? Can I help it if you taught Sandy to make parachute jumps? <laughs> <laughs> shall, uh, shall we take in a movie this evening, darling? Oh, I'm sorry, but I have a meeting of the Camelot Ladies' Welfare and Cultural Society. I'm vice president, you know. Will you mind Geronimo? What about the nurse? She'll be at the Welfare Society, too. She's president. Yes. Uh, sir Boss, do you really think it was a good idea to emancipate the women... They're getting awfully hard to handle these days. Work made the years go faster, and there was plenty of work to be done. Streetcars and washing machines went hand in hand with better working conditions and a higher standard of living. Libraries and day nurseries were open before bowling alleys and baseball fields. What had taken 150 years in America, I was accomplishing in 15. Of course, there were those who didn't like the way things were going. Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom of opportunity. I tell thee, Merlin, Sir Boss hath not only destroyed the flower of chivalry, but hath corrupted the people with his magic. Fear not, good Mordred. I have a magic older than his. This enchantment he hath cast upon the land will not endure. Mark me. We shall wait our time and strike and yet be masters of the realm. Merlin was always doing his best to stir up trouble among the knights, but we were making real progress despite them. At the beginning of the 16th year, Arthur came around and told me it was high time I had a vacation. Didn't know but what I agreed with him. So I packed Sandy and Geronimo off to a spot where I'd invested pretty heavily in resort property, and we had ourselves a time. The French Riviera isn't what it used to be. Then it was wonderful, and I had the best time of my life. Until one day when Sandy came tearing down to the beach. Come on up to the house. Clarence is on the radio phone. No phone calls for me, Sandy. I'm on vacation. But you've got to come. This is serious. Okay, okay. Stop bragging me. What happened? Merlin. He got you out of the way and then moved in. Merlin? Got me out of the way? Yes. He talked Arthur into getting you to take this vacation. Why didn't Clarence get in touch with me? Because the first thing they did was to take over all communications. He's risking his life to sneak through this call. But didn't the king and Sir Launcelot do anything? They... Talk to Clarence. He'll tell you about it. All right. Hello, Clarence. Spill it. Listen, boss. The day after you left, Merlin and Mordred up and told the king all the gossip about Launcelot and Guinevere. Oh, no. The boys chose up sides, and there was a terrible battle between Launcelot's army and Arthur's army, which saved Merlin the trouble of wasting his own men. Divide and conquer. And I thought that was a 20th century invention. Where is Arthur now? Dead. Killed in battle. Arthur dead? Impossible. So Mordred is king, and Merlin is running the show. Just waiting for you to get back to ring down the final curtain. They haven't got a chance. Why, with our stores of ammunition and our thousands of trained troops... Save your breath. We have just 50 loyal men left. 
rest went over to Merlin. But why? Why? Because they were scared, that's why. They were scared of Merlin without you on the spot to protect him. Did you really think you'd educated the superstition out of these people? I did think so, yes. Well, now you know better. So the game's up, is it? Not necessarily. You remember that big cave just north of the river? Yes. Well, I took our faithful 50 and turned it into a fortress in case you might want to make a real fight of it. In case? Of course I want to make a real fight of it. I'm coming back to England. As someone is going to say someday, I have not yet begun to fight. The moment I got back, I could see that everything was wrong. The streets of Camelot were empty, dark. No people, no automobiles, no policemen, no lights, nothing. Clarence met me in a jeep just before dawn and whisked me over to our fortifications. He picked the ideal spot for our last-ditch stand. The cave was located about halfway up a hill so that we couldn't be attacked from the rear or the flanks. The enemy would have to make a head-on attack, and we were well prepared for that. I think we've covered every possibility, Sir Boss. I figure the first thing they'll do is charge across that field in formation. So I've planted a little garden to greet them. Anti-personnel mines? Right. That field out there is loaded with them. Did you test them, Clarence? Well, a committee of knights snooping around was kind enough to test one for us. And did the committee make a report? <laughs> I'll say they did. You could have heard it for a mile. Then, um, well, you can see the fences for yourself. Are they electrical? Natch! Now, up there on the hill, right over the cave, I've set up 20 nests of machine guns. And just in case, I've dammed up the river so that the whole field can be flooded in an emergency. Clarence, you're a military genius. Yes, I wouldn't be surprised. Well, we're all set. And none too soon. Look out there. Get a load of that, will you? How many do you figure there are? Hard to tell from here. Looks like a tidal wave coming up, doesn't it? <laughs> I see they've gone back to horses. It's quite a sight, isn't it, Clarence? Yes. Makes me sick. You give people a chance to be free, to live without fear, to find security and peace. The first chance they get, they vote themselves right back into slavery. It isn't their fault. Probably takes longer than we thought to teach a whole population what freedom really means. Teach! Brother, they have to be willing to learn. Look. Look, you can see them plainly now. And hear them, too. Must be 30,000 of them. Look at them come. Well, they'll reach the minefield in a few minutes. Won't be long now. Closer. 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 Minefield, do your duty! Quite a victory. 30,000 men slain on the field of battle in 20 minutes. But through victory came our defeat by three lines of rotting corpses all around our cave. It was impossible to get out. 
the disease I dreaded began to take its toll among my handful of boys. One by one, they were struck down. Finally, I got it myself. So, boss, isn't there anything I can do for you? Yes. Listen, Clarence. Listen carefully. Yes, sir. Pull the switch. The master switch? That's right. So, boss, things aren't that bad. We're licked, Clarence. We've conquered in one way and we've been conquered in another. Pull that switch. All those beautiful factories and mills and workshops. All to be blown to bits. We knew it might have to be done someday, Clarence. Isn't that why we loaded them with dynamite and ran the wires here? I didn't think we'd ever really use it. Thanks for the faith in me, Clarence. I'm afraid I've let you down. Don't talk nonsense. Clarence, get started. I don't want to miss the last act. I'll be right back, boss. Sit tight. That must have been the munitions dump. All gone. All gone. The dream of... What? That you, Clara? <laughs> now is thy power lost to thee, thou who wert, sir boss. Merlin. Now have I conquered thee at last. Oh, go, go away, Merlin. Scat. Sleep, sir boss. Sleep, sir boss. Sleep. Thou shalt sleep for fourteen hundred years, and then thou shalt awake in a strange and terrible land. That's the last sound I heard back there. I woke up in my own yard in Hartford with that army guy tossing water in my face and laughing like a fool. And that's all there is to it. Well, sir, you've been kind to listen to me. I've got to get back to the place I call home now, back to Hartford. Bye. It's been nice talking to you. Goodbye, young man. He walked slowly over to Sir Sagramore's armor, ran his hand ever so gently over the breastplate with a bullet hole in it, turned, stalked down the aisle between the helmets, swords, hauberks, spears, and morions, and disappeared through the door. That was the last I saw of him, the man who might or might not have been a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court. Twain on his star. We hope we've followed you in spirit, if not always in letter, and we beg leave to add a 20th century moral to your 19th century tale, namely, freedom, which is greater than gadgets, must be learned and guarded still. The placards outside the Ford Theater read, next week, The Great McGinty a notably hilarious comedy based on the movie classic by Preston Sturges. Come one, come all. 
A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court was adapted by Lillian Shane, edited by Howard Teichman, with continuity by George Faulkner. The musical score was written and conducted by Lynn Murray, and the entire production was under the direction of George Zachary. The Yankee was played by Mason Adams, King Arthur by Carl Swenson, Sandy by Charita Bauer, and Clarence by Eon Martin. The other players were Santos Ortega, Horace Braham, Neil Fitzgerald, Reese Taylor, and John Moore. This is Howard Lindsay saying good afternoon for the management of the Ford Theater and extending a cordial invitation to meet a great McGinty here next Sunday. Ford Theater is presented by the Ford Motor Company, makers of Ford, Mercury, and Lincoln cars, and Ford trucks, tractors, and buses. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. That was an episode of the Ford Theater called A Connecticut Yankee, originally broadcast October 5th, 1947, on NBC Radio. Paul, this was your selection for this installment. Tell us. Tell us, uh, why did you choose it? Well, I chose... Well, okay, I got a question for you here, Pete. Okay. This was a request. This is like, our, I think, our first request. Do we mention that it was a request well, or anything? of course, of course. Yes, we want to include anybody who's listening and wants to make a make a request. We want to Do make we sure mention that, who? If that person doesn't mind being mentioned on the air. Okay. Do we want to give out a complete uh, mailing address so we can send them flowers or something? Maybe, maybe. So if they don't like his choice, write to him at this address. <laughs> Mr. X. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please, please. Who who, who was the, uh, um, the person who made the selection? Uh, an old Navy friend of mine, Tim Seiler. Ahoy! It's like we just got in touch with each other not too long ago, and we've been just kind of catching up with each other. And I mentioned about the, uh, the the podcast we do, and he started following it and sent me a request. Well, that's I'm excellent. Like, oh. Well, what did you think of it? What, what was your opinion uh, of it? You can tell that this was right after World War II because, man, they were patriotic about this one. I like how they painted the knights as all kind of evil and thuggish and Merlin was so evil and everything <laughs> and how he was fighting for the everyman and it was so patriotic and I'm sorry I've I've known some CBs I really don't think they could make like a radio from scratch you know <laughs> oh, you gotta make the vacuum tubes the wiring the sock I mean eh. There's so much stuff that they had, and they were like, wow, he's been busy. <laughs> Sir Boss, he really knew his stuff. Well, maybe he, he knew all this before he went into the Seabees. That's uh, what you're supposed to assume, I guess. I guess so. I guess so. But it was very colorful. It was very well done. 
the sound quality was good, the orchestration and everything. I mean, it was it was a very good production. Unfortunately, the Ford Radio Theater only lasted two seasons because, like, the popularity of, I guess, if you weren't already established, maybe, as a radio program, the newer stuff was having a hard time because of television creeping onto the scene because they did that for two years and then they switched over to doing the Ford Television Theater. And I think that ran for, like, eight seasons or something after that. So they were they were more successful on television than they were on the radio. Okay. Well, Jane, what did you think of it? <laughs> I thought it was very long, <laughs> and I was glad when it was over. <laughs> <laughs> now, here, here's my deal. In in 1970, and you guys may re- remember this. Pete, I don't know, Paul. Probably. In 1970, there was an animated version of it. Pete, you're just a couple of years younger. And oh, no, I saw 19- it. Are you talking about the one with the motorcycles? Could be, but it had Orson Bean who did the narration. Okay, oh, I don't remember. And it, it was 1970. It was a CBS uh, TV production. It was an animation house out of Australia because I had to do my research on this. Oh. And that thing, it, it was part of their the, – uh, CBS did a, a – uh, of course, I have Fractured Fairy Tales stuck in my head. That wasn't it, but it was like it was like a uh, um, story such as this, like a, a animated version of Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. And I remember th- – it coming on and I was so mad because it probably interrupted Scooby-Doo or something. Who knows? <laughs> but it was a special mm-hmm. and clearly I watched it. And, but I remember after that, because it was repeated annually that I hated it because I guess for some reason, while the content and the story overall is very great, of course it's Mark Twain and um, there is a point to be had. It just, I think probably as a young girl, it, it, kind of adversely affected me because of the war aspect of it. Um, but anyway, it was long. And uh, um, <laughs> at the beginning of Act 3, I couldn't believe I still had to listen to another 18 minutes. Um, <laughs> I thought Merlin sounded a bit like Dobby, but of course, you know, that's way pre-Dobby. So I thought that was kind of <laughs> cute. That's the voice I kept hearing in my hand, you know. Dobby's a sock. Um and uh, I, I think the story. Sock. Right? <laughs> I think the story, of course, is timely because it, it is a good lesson. It's Mark Twain, and um, but it wouldn't anyway. That, that's what I have said. Okay. Okay. Well, for me, uh, I agree with Jane. It was very long. I, I was really surprised that that um, they they took it and padded it out to, you know, an hour long show. But uh, I did enjoy it. I, I thought that Mason Adams um, as uh, Sir Boss was terrific. I'm a huge Mason Adams fan as in terms of radio. I first heard his voice when he was on the Lou Grant show in the 70s or early 80s. Um, you know, the spinoff from the Mary Tyler Moore show with Ed Asner. Yeah. Uh, sure. He, he was the, uh, the editor of the newspaper. Yeah, I remember Right. And so um, when I first started listening to old time radio and I started hearing Mason Adams, I thought, that's the guy from Lou Grant. And so mm-hmm. whenever I hear his voice, I naturally associate him with that and my happy childhood, blah, blah, blah. But um, I enjoyed it because of his voice. 
He really was a terrific radio performer. Um, I enjoyed it because I enjoy the story, and I have seen that uh, animated version of A Connecticut Yankee, and I saw it when I was little only once, but I remember how they ended it where um, uh, somebody opens a history book and there's King Arthur standing with a motorcycle. Ah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A souped up motorcycle. So that was right. that was their version of it. But I also enjoyed um, the movie with Bing Crosby and William Bendix. And of course, that one had Bing as Sir Boss and all the terrific music and uh, William Bendix as his uh, bumbling friend who starts off as his enemy because he calls him a dragon because he's smoking a cigarette <laughs> right, <laughs> right when he first sees him, calls him a dragon. But uh, I, uh, I, have to to I have to admit, I've never read the original story. Mm-mm. But I've seen this movie and I've seen this cartoon and now I've heard this uh, adaptation of it. So uh, who knows what the real story is? I've never, I, I never read it, but I did enjoy it. It did go on a long time. And I thought that the lead-ups to the commercial breaks were pretty pretty lame. Like uh, Sir Boss says, oh, I need to go outside and have a smoke. Uh, you just wait here for a minute until I get back, and then they go to a commercial. Uh, the tie-ins. Uh, of course, Paul, you, you kind of warned us last, last time. You said that they have a Ford in the show. And <laughs> Sir Boss says, this is just a Tin Lizzie. A Model T. Uh, uh, wait till we build a Lincoln. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they were well aware of product placement back then. Yes, it was serious product placement there. But I thought that the actors were really good. The guy who played King Arthur was terrific. The uh, the other supporting characters were really good. I didn't I, I didn't connect uh, Merlin with Dobby, but uh, <laughs> I did listen to him as good. He just seemed like his feeble old guy, you know. He seems like he's not even five foot tall. He's got a bit of a hump. He's <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's not my my Merlin in my head hump? the way that was presented. Yeah, what hump? <laughs> hump. But I think overall it, it did it did play well, um, and I enjoyed it. I only listened to it once. I think once once was enough. I didn't want to. Yeah. I didn't want to go through another hour of it. Uh, but. Um, yeah. Uh, did anybody, uh, Paul, did you have anything else you wanted to add to this since this was your selection? Yeah. Um, I just like how you're supposed to take things for granted. I'm sorry, but I just thought it was kind of funny. You know, they get to the very end and he's dying and blow it. And so they blow up everything and say, okay, so you just blew up everything you created to where there's absolutely no evidence left over aside from that bullet hole in the chest plate from the guy you shot months ago. <laughs> you know, it's like, hmm, there's not one cog left from any of the factories. You guys are making these subdivisions with grade schools and high schools and stuff like that. And none of that all of them got blown up, and if it was during class, where the kids all killed, you know, oh, stuff like required. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty funny how uh, how Sir Boss wanted to create the American middle class in, <laughs> in oh yeah, in ninth century England or whatever it was. Yeah, well, it was and required century. a bit of suspension of disbelief for yeah. sure, just a wee bit. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
just a wee bit, but I think that was that was easy to play with in radio back in those days. People were were a lot more welcoming of it. Yes, to suspend belief for a while, you know, and just turn their brains off. I'd say so. Yeah, radio was very very uh, much uh, open to uh, suspension of disbelief when when you're forming the pictures in your head. And like you said, the sound design was really good. The the, the um, sound effects were good. The music was mm-hmm. wonderful. I, I didn't have any com- complaints about uh, uh, how the pictures were formed uh, as as the as the show went on. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I even pictured him taking a pack of cigarettes out of his pocket and saying, "I really need a smoke, so I'm going to go outside." <laughs> and I loved how how the language modified uh, over the course of, right. of it. You know, did you notice how the how those in England or where you know they, they're you know, by the end of it they were all oh, you know, flinging out the the, the slang, forty slang. Yeah. yeah, it was fun. I, I, I guess her hash has been cooked. Yeah. And then I could finally understand what Sandy was saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they they all sort of adapted their uh, speech patterns to Sir Boss, which is very funny. Um, and then, well, well, right at the beginning, when he cast that first spell to bring about the the eclipse, he cast that spell, and he he just used a bunch of slang. Uh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, hey, Sutton Ballston and uh, hey, uh, Bob, uh, open the door, yeah. Richard. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I like the the uh, what was it supposed to be like the creature that was going to swallow it uh, called out its name, which no one should know, and it was Snafu. Yeah. Oh, snafu. did I miss yeah. that? Oh, that's brilliant. Snafu. No, not snafu. snafu. <laughs> Jane, you do know what snafu means, right? Of course I do. Okay. Just check. <laughs> Situation normal. I've seen guys are both ex-military, so. Yes. Situation normal. All up. Yep. All fester shield up. All fester shield up. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, that's one of my new commercials for the future future use um anybody else have anything to add to this i think uh that's pretty much i think we pretty well covered it okay that's a on that groovy groovy let's vote then and what are we voting on dear listener as a reminder we're voting on one whether this particular episode is a true representative installment of the overall series and two whether or not it's a standalone show that belongs in every radio aficionado's collection. And again, Paul, since this was your selection, please go first. Thank you, sir. Oh, yes. Um, I liked it. It was enjoyable. Again, like we were saying, if you turn your brain off enough, it actually was pretty good. I wouldn't put it up there with the Orson Welles Treasure Island that we did on the first episode. No. I mean, the production value I think was pretty darn close to that. I mean, for the, the orchestration and uh, the sound effects, all that kind of stuff, that was all really good. But the, you know, the story just wasn't as much as well, you know, but I still kind of liked it. So I'm going to give it a thumbs up. Okay. Jane, what do you say? I'm going to say, um, well, as far as like the production goes and, and it being probably a, a good representative of the overall series regarding production and the overall tightness. And, you know, it was an NBC thing, Ford Theater. It was still well done. Um, I would leave it up to 
those to listen to it and decide if it was something that they wanted to add. I wouldn't personally put this in mine. Uh, my collection. Uh, but that's me because I'm just not, a, never been a fan uh, of the story. But uh, so that, that, that's it for me. I, I think it, it'd probably be up to, to one to, you know, if it speaks to you, add it to your collection. <laughs> well, that was very noncommittal of you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> okay. I'm a Libra. What can I say? All righty. Well, I'm an Aquarian. So, I don't know what that means in terms of old-time radio. <laughs> but uh, as for me, I, I enjoyed it, but this was my first time listening to any episode of the Ford Radio Theater. Uh, so I don't know if it's representative of the overall series, but I would say it, um, it's, it's entertaining. It's got a lot going for it uh, in terms of the performances. Mason Adams, of course, really brings a lot of energy to it. Um, he's believable in terms of uh, his his enthusiasm as Sir Boss. The production values are terrific, like Paul said. Uh, of course, they had the power of the full the full might of the Ford Motor Company behind them, uh, making this a fairly large budget uh, per Cha -ching. performance. Hmm? Cha-ching? Yeah. Cha-ching. Cha-ching. <laughs> but I can't really say that it would belong in... Um, every radio aficionado's collection. So the thumbs medium in, in right halfway between up and down for me. It okay. Kind of like the, 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 clo the most borderline kind of show we've done so far. Like, well, it's, it's, it's yeah. got this. Nobody it's hates it. Nobody hates yeah. it the way we hated the lights out. <laughs> <laughs> this was kind of my lights out. I'm stabbing you with my knife. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You are now dying because you cannot breathe <laughs> because I have put my hand over your mouth. <laughs> yes. What I liked about this one, though, everybody, was that there wasn't all that exposition. <laughs> yeah. It was the story. It was, you know, yeah. it was scripted well. Yeah. It took the full hour, and it, it allowed for uh, character development and stuff like that. But like Jane said, it was pretty long. Anybody else? Well, no, you, gotta, you okay. had to give them time to build airplanes, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, yeah. can't do that in a half an hour, man. <laughs> twoo, twoo, very twoo. Although I think the the cartoon was a half an hour. Oh, but that was only a motorcycle. It was a motorcycle, right? <laughs> okay, so we've got um, three middle of the road. You know, no no hates, no no real loves. Uh, so we'll let it go at that. Okay, great. This brings us to the end of episode five of Old Time Radio Essentials with Jane St. John, Paul Arbisi, and me, Pete Lutz. Next time, the cycle comes around to Jane again, and she's bringing us... Hello, Yukon 28209. Yes, this is Candy Matson. Oh, an episode of Candy Matson. We're going to do, uh, yeah, Candy Matson, um, the Fort Ord story. From September 23rd to 1949, um, this is an NBC West Coast produced show. It's produced by a fellow by the name of Monty Masters and his wife, Natalie Parks, is who he cast in the, the lead role of Candy Madsen. And uh, they are set in San Francisco. And there are uh, many, many references to locations that uh, 
folks who have been to San Francisco lived out there will be familiar with. And, and it's, it's a, it's a fun show. And, and uh, that's what's uh, we're going to do next time. Excellent. I'm well familiar with that show. I think that'll be a very good selection for us. Okay. Well, thanks everybody. That's next month on old time radio essentials, Jane, Paul, tell the masses what they need to know. Old Time Radio Essentials is a production of 63 Audio, a proud member of the all-new Mutual Audio Network. Find us at www.mutualaudionetwork.com or www.naradaradio.lipsyn.com on iTunes under Mutual Audio Network and or Narada Radio Company and on any podcatcher you may happen to use. Like us on Facebook at Mutual Audio Fans and at Narada Radio Company Fans and Friends. And on Twitter, find us at Essentials Old. Now, if you want to suggest a future episode, write to us at f6.3 at gmail.com. That's the letter F as in Frank, the number six, the word point, as in six, (laughs) the word point, as in point, and the number three at gmail.com. And one more, and finally... Put the word essentials in the subject. But wait, there's more. Put the word essentials, yeah, what he said in the subject line. If only you had these things written down for you. <laughs> That's pretty good off the top of your head. <laughs> I read. I read good. <laughs> All right. Yeah, don't be afraid there, dear listeners. Send us emails and tell us what you think of the show and tell us what you want to hear. It doesn't take much effort to send us feedback or leave us a review, and it'll make you feel good and us too. And now, thanks to all of you for listening. And we want to thank Tim Seiler for this suggestion, and we invite the rest of you to contact us if you have a selection for a future show. Thanks, Tim. Be sure to catch us next time on Old Time Radio Essentials. Bye-bye for now. Toodles. See ya. Thanks for tuning in. What a Okay. Wait a minute. 63 Audio. Mutual of Audio's Sonic Kingdom. Presented to you by the Mutual Audio Network. The network where we can all listen and imagine. Together. Hi. I'm Perky Marlins. And welcome back to Mutual of Audio's Sonic Kingdom. Last week, we traveled to the wilds of Audio Island, which is in the western edge of that place some call the Bermuda Triangle. We went there to check on the progress of an audio drama producer who we have re-educated into the aspects of surviving in the wilds of the audio podverse. This wild creature, who Jim has named Bobo, has been used by society as a data entry clerk, a bartender, 
a project manager, an exotic dancer, and a biomedical research subject. The Mutual Audio Network's re-education project gives our young friend an opportunity for a productive life in Bobo's natural environment as an audio drama or comedy producer. The rehabilitation of this magnificent, wild, and creative animal includes a chance to reach a wider range of distribution and the extra exposure that brings, along with free production resources and the potential to make some money. Bobo has been hard at work on a first masterpiece, and right now, we can see Jim giving Bobo some feedback on the final mix. That's pretty good, Bobo. I'm just not sure about the choice of background music. It seems to be a bit too... Bobo, no! No, I'm sorry, Bobo! No, don't, don't, don't hurt me, Bobo! <laughs> Artists. Sometimes they can get a bit touchy. Well, Jim knew the job was dangerous when he took it. Join us next week as Mutual of Audio's Sonic Kingdom will visit a pack of voice actors living in the hidden valleys of darkest Nova Scotia. For more information about the Mutual Audio Network, go to MutualAudioNetwork.com or inquire at MutualAudio at gmail.com. The Mutual Audio Network. Listening and imagining together.